welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we are talking about chapter 14 of The Amber Spyglass. Know what it is. Bitch. You know what it is, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to find out what it is, bitch. (laughs) I fucking hope so, anyway. a weird name for a chapter and now i've read the chapter i'm like it looks to like... be honest i don't think we do find out what it is <laughs> we don't yeah, we still we don't know what it is not really knowing what it is <laughs> anyway hello how are you i'm good it has been not very long since we last recorded because i'm a fancy bitch that goes on two holidays in two months and then doesn't leave the house for the rest of the year she's swanning <laughs> off again without me how dare with, without you this fucking time, yeah. dare you yeah, I need a break from you, actually, not with you, so... It's fair. Valid. <laughs> I respect it. So yeah, I'm going away with my partner and some of his family. It's going to be great, but also I... Well, you know this from having been on holiday with me. We did a, quite an active thing. Of We did lots of stuff every day. This is going to be the opposite of that. We're going to be doing very, very little every day, and I don't do well at relaxing. I am not good at those holidays like those types of holidays at all because like I get bored really easily and feel like I have to be doing something and also because I'm not very good I mean we have this in common not very good in the sun so I used to go on holidays where or I've been on holidays before uh, with people that just love to sunbathe so it's perfect for them and that's amazing but I'm like oh my god I've got to do something like I'm so bored <laughs> I just have to like go for a walk or whatever you know like I, I can't just yeah. do nothing I'm so. taking lots of books and like my sketchbook and stuff for drawing and I will occupy myself somehow you know I'm gonna put as much effort and like concentration as I can into relaxing as possible <laughs> that's how you relax relaxing. right <laughs> yes, that's I how that so. works I think you so, just yeah. try really really hard and then you're mm-hmm. relaxed <laughs> just literally force yourself that's how mm-hmm. you do it oh, what's been going on since we last recorded um not that very, much very very Little. I saw you at the pub at the weekend. That was mm-hmm. nice. It was. It was. Mm-hmm. I went to a football match. Faye? What's been going on? Only the biggest event of Faye's entire life. She went and saw football in a, in a football stadium. She saw people and they were using their feet to kick a ball. Oh, mostly, God. I assume. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so I... Um, I grew up in a very football-oriented family and I've never really been a person that liked sports. I'm sorry, for the American listeners, we do mean soccer. Soccer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, my mum used to take me to football matches because she's a massive football fan um, because she didn't have anyone to look after me. So I would go and I'd take like a plastic bag with like my Game Boy in it and like a book and stuff like that. And I would sit and, and um, do that while the football was happening in front of me. My mum loves telling that story, by the way. She told it to Liam and Matt and Alex on yesterday because obviously... Of course she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, oh my God. And I'm like, they already know it. God damn it. Anyway, so yeah, I grew up in a football family, never really liked sports. And then... I was extremely jet lagged 
And the team that my mum and dad support, which is Rotherham United, uh, were playing at Wembley Stadium. And my mum phoned me and I was like literally delirious. I was It was at the point where I was like shaking because I was so tired. And I was like, I don't know what fucking planet I'm on right now. And they were like, oh, we're coming to Wembley in a couple of weeks to watch Rotherham. Do you want us to get you a ticket? And I was like, okay, cool, sure. Whereas what you actually meant was... I would love to see you, but there is nothing more that I would not love to do than actually watch this football match. So I'll just meet you beforehand for a drink. (laughs) Exactly. And that's exactly what I should have said. But the words did not come out of my mouth. And then uh, it turns out that some of our friends were going as well. So I went... (laughs) Because the thing is about football is that there's there's certain aspects of it that I was really horrendously anxious the entire day. And there's certain aspects of football that really give me like the anxiety. So like the fact that like the place where we went for a drink before, I don't know if this is a common thing. I don't know that much about football, but like they'd like segregated places so that like only Rotherham fans could go in Box Park Wembley, which is where we went. And like uh, they were playing Sutton. So like only Sutton fans could go in this certain other pub. I didn't know that was a thing until I showed up at Box Park and they were like who who you support and I was like no one <laughs> and they were like uh and then I saw the thing that said like Rotherham whatever and I was like oh well you know probably Rotherham then and they were like oh you've got red hair you can come in because Rotherham's colours are red I was like oh funny a classic bit of football humour <laughs> oh yeah yeah and also the fact that like you can't drink when you're like actually watching something not that I'm like I have to drink but I was like the fact that there's obviously reasons behind these rules and usually it's because people are fighting stuff and like there's lots of aggression and it really makes me anxious and it was fucking horrible and like our friend Matt did I tell you I don't I've not told you but like our friend Matt was like came up to like me me and my mum and dad and everyone at half time and he was just stood there laughing at me and I was like why are you laughing and he was like it's just so fucking funny to see you in this environment he was like I never thought I would ever see you in like a football environment football stadium and Mm -hmm. I was like I hate this I hate it I will not be doing that again it was a fucking ordeal honestly so I polar opposite did not grow up in a football family the only way I would ever go to watch a football match if it was one that Johnny particularly cared about and really wanted and I would be there probably more to support him than to support to actually care about the football have you have you been to a football match with Johnny Never, 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 never. <laughs> never in my entire life have I been to a football match. Look at you, Angel. You're like, in theory, I would go, but I actually haven't. And we've been together for nearly 10 years. <laughs> well, yeah, but also he hasn't been to the football. In really, like, he, he went for the first time in ages. And he was saying that was really weird because he was he supports Liverpool. And it was Liverpool versus Arsenal, but he was standing in the Arsenal stand and like trying to hide his joy when Liverpool scored because he was like, I don't want to get beaten up. And I'm like, yeah, that's well, not the vibe. That? Yeah. It's not the vibe I want to engage no. with. Sam. It's not for me. It's not for me. You know what? And that's fine. It's not for me. And I'm okay with it. (laughs) Well, I guess we should stop chatting shit about a sport we know nothing about. And (laughs) (laughs) talk about a book we know ever so slightly more about. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Or something we hopefully know a lot about, which is ourselves. And that's how I get to segue into asking you what your demon would have been this week. Excellent. Did you like my segue? I did. You were as great at segues. So, my demon this week. I, last night, when I got back from the bloody football, I ate Ananda's and went to sleep at half nine. And then... Beautiful. 
oh, beautiful. <laughs> woke up at half eight. Actually, I think I woke up at like one because I replied to your message. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 20 past 12, actually. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And then went immediately back to sleep. That's the most I've slept since before we went on holiday. I've just had horrific sleep for like a month. So like... It was so good to wake up this morning and be like, oh my God, Like, is this what normal people feel like when they wake up? So, because I feel like I'm still catching up on sleep. Zach told me, our friend Zach told me that like you can never catch up on sleep. He was like, once you've lost sleep, you've lost it, you'll never get it back. I was Googling uh, like sleep deficit in terms of like if you stay up for 24 hours, what is... Like, what is the advice? And like, do you catch up on it? Do you oversleep in order to catch up? It's like, yeah, you're right. You don't catch up. You just have to try and get back to like a normal number of hours as soon as possible. And that helps to like rectify things. Once it's gone, it's gone. You're just sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like my demon would be a really sleepy animal. <clears throat> I was looking into like, what are the sleepiest animals? Do you, do you want to hazard a guess at this? The top number one sleepiest animal in the world. It's not going to be a sloth because that would be a stereotype. And I know you don't like sloths. Is it some kind of a bear because they hibernate? Mm-mm. In the name, yeah, but I don't think it is actually a bear. Ooh, bear's in the name, but it's not actually a bear. I love this game. Uh, something bear? I don't know. What What's even got bear in the name? Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. <laughs> koala bear. Oh, a koala bear's not... I guess they're marsupials, aren't they? Marsupials, yeah. Yeah. So koala bears sleep for 22 hours a day, which is just outrageous. Uh, Sloths apparently sleep for 20 hours a day, but that was with the caveat of um, they think like only in captivity they sleep that long. Human babies was on the list, which amused me. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Yeah, and little sleep and poop machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I can't, I can't really remember the other. Uh, squirrels were on there, um, and I can't remember the others. But uh, yeah, so koala bear. I'd have a little koala bear. Nice. Did you know that there is a cryptid in Australia? Correct me if I'm wrong. Australians called a drop bear, which is basically it's a koala, but it's evil. So it, the idea is that it's a drop bear. It drops on you from above, and like. Claws you to death. It's like a koala, but with like extra long claws, maybe. But it's just ev- evil koalas that drop on you. That sounds fucking horrendous. Yeah. Well, what would your what would your demon have been? Hopefully, not a drop bear. <laughs> not a drop bear. Um, a real blast from the past. Tell me if you ever read it. Glove slime. Ooh, no, I've never heard of it's it. A Jacqueline Wilson book about a magic oh toad. It's a Jacqueline Wilson book. I thought I'd read yes. every single Jacqueline Wilson book. Well, me and Ellie had a massive, like, we went off on one. We were, like, trying to remember all the Jacqueline Wilson books and, like, take off the ones that we'd read as kids. And Glove Slime came up. And it's kind of been just, like, in the back of my head for a little while. And then also I've just been feeling generally a bit like gross little goblin working on all my stuff and... Just generally the vibe that is like a warty, magical toad that just kind of sits on my desk and judges me. Just, I remember Glove Slime being like quite judgy and sassy. I could be wrong. I recognise the the front cover, but I don't think I ever read it. But like, Jacqueline Wilson doesn't really do books like that. It's quite rare for her to do something a bit magical in that sense. Yeah. Usually she's all about depressing <laughs> depressing foster care situation usually she's all about children with no or horrible parents honestly i attribute so much of my like teenagehood and childhood melodrama to reading jacqueline wilson books and being like why wasn't i a baby that was found in a dustbin and has had a a very dramatic life and it's like but why would you want that (laughs) 
I feel like we need to start a Jacqueline Wilson podcast after <gasps> this. Like, oh my God. I would fucking love that so much. I, I remember like girls in love and girls in tears and all that kind of stuff. I remember like learning lots of stuff about sex and periods and things like that from, from that. And also, I know it's not Jacqueline Wilson, but also Sugar Rush. Yeah. Learned so much from that. It was also a TV show and little baby Andrew Garfield did it. Yeah. Also about lesbians, <laughs> hell yeah. Yeah, little little did you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> no wonder I love that book so much, you know. Shall we talk about yes. the book we're here to talk about? We're always like, oh, we don't have much to say because we only recorded like three days ago and here we are talking about football and Jacqueline minutes. Wilson. <laughs> I'd rather talk about Jacqueline Wilson, to be honest. Well, yes. God, me too. <laughs> okay, yes, let's let's get into it, shall we? Last chapter, Will escaped with a finally awake Lyra, followed by Tally and Sally. Will did another murder, threw up about it, and then had a much-needed catch-up with Lyra, where they decided that they needed to go to the land of the dead. Lyra and Will persuaded Tally and Sally to help them find Yorick, who Lyra discovered should be able to fix the knife. In this chapter, Lyra, Will, Tally and Sally head back to Lyra's world to find Yorick. Yorick is reluctant to fix the knife because he's scared of what it could do. Lyra uses the alethiometer to find out more about the knife's intentions. Ooh, cruel intentions? Maybe. Let's find I, out. Honestly, I did think about trying to write <laughs> that in somewhere. <laughs> are they cruel? I don't know. Let's find out. Let's find out. Uh, well, uh, here we are. Here we are. And before you tell me about the quirk, do you want to guess the picture? Is it a, the broken knife? She's got it. Is it? Yeah. I, I was like, is that going to be this chapter or next chapter? Because I know like Yorick lays it down and like looks at it this chapter. Mm -hmm. but... Do you think? Oh, very nice. Is it? Is it as good as my broken knife? That's the question. Absolutely not. How many parts are in the picture? Because I was like, is it the blade that broke into seven pieces or is it six blade pieces plus the hilt? Hang on. One, two, three, four, five. There's seven broken pieces and then the hilt separate. So it's, yeah, like eight. Mm. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. I was just checking that I'd drawn it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that the first one that you guessed right? Oh, I don't know. Somebody give me a treat. I know. Should it be keeping a score somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Book one. Rage one, book 25. <laughs> no, book so, 13, at least. Rage messaged me earlier, being like, Wait until you hear me talk about this fucking oh, quirk. Well. So go on. I will just say that I definitely did read this one, but I wasn't really sure what was meant because it says the word base a million times. What does it mean by that? So here's the vibe. The vibe is it's a stuffy Victorian guy who oh I have decided that I have taken a dislike to for no apparent reason. I think I was just angry when I was making my notes. Fair. Um, aside from the fact that he pontificates, which is very much the vibe. Um, so base in this sense, I guess, quite often people say base, they mean like low, lacking or indicating the lack of higher qualities of mind or spirit. See ignoble. Yeah, so... For example, in sentences, it seemed a base betrayal of his idealism or appealing to a person's baser instincts, which might be one that you recognise more as the way that it's been used, or being of comparatively low value and having relatively inferior properties, such as a lack of resistance to corrosion, like a base metal, but also you could use that to apply to people too. 
This is just saying, this quote is just saying that like anything without labour is shit. Well, okay. So my first note on this was, aka, you gotta work, bitch. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Is <laughs> it just a more complicated way of saying what Britney's been trying to tell us this whole time? I'll order and save you, Britney Spears, yes. Of course. Uh, so I'll just read the quote Labour without joy is base. Labour without sorrow is base. Sorrow without labour is base. Joy without labour is base. Everything is base. Pump up the base. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> you're basic so the sentiment is like it's a bit of a shit way of saying if you do what you love you'll never work in a day in your life or if you're not passionate about what you're working on what's the point if it doesn't cause you sorrow what's the point because then there's no joy but at the same time if what you're finding joy in doesn't take some hard work what's the point in it right very capitalist vibes very capitalist vibes so this is a quote from John Ruskin. Why do we care about John Ruskin? To be honest, we don't. (laughs) This is from his collected works or a collection of his letters. In order to be relatively impartial, I'm just going to read like the very basic, like, this is who he is thing. Okay, so John Ruskin uh, was born in 1819 and he died in 1900. So very Victorian. Uh, He is an English writer, philosopher and critic and polymath of the Victorian era. And he wrote on subjects such as art and painting and philosophy. And basically, I can only see him as a massively entitled art history wanker. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, I did philosophy at uni, actually. So I think I'll find that I know a lot more about Plato than you. (laughs) Uh, that vibe. Oh, and therefore I've I've written like an open letter about my thoughts on like thought itself. And I feel like it's really transformative. That is the vibe I get from Ruskin. Sure, sure. Um, so, and part of the reason that I get this vibe is this particular quote that Phil has pulled is from a collection of works, which is actually a a collection of his letters because he liked to wax lyrical to his friends and write open letters because... Don't we just love that vibe? Um, it's called, it's the fifth letter from a collection called Time and Tide. And it's a letter to whom I'm not sure it could be open, but he is reviewing a pantomime that he went to see at Covent Garden. <laughs> this quote is pulled from a review of a pantomime. Oh my God. He talks for, let's see how many paragraphs, uh, at least two, three, four, five, six paragraphs about life itself and the purpose of labour and joy and sorrow before he even... Oh, no, seven paragraphs before he even mentions the pantomime itself. Just write a separate thing about life. Why include that in your pantomime review? Well, and so he's musing on life, the purpose of labour. He says this quote, you know, I'll read the wider thing around it because we... There are three things to which man is born, labour and sorrow and joy. Each of these three things has its baseness and its nobleness. There is base labour and noble labour. There is base sorrow and noble sorrow. There is base joy and noble joy. But you must not think to avoid the corruption of these things by doing without the things themselves. Nor can any life be right that has not all three. 
Labour without joy is base. Labour without sorrow is base. Sorrow without labour is base. Joy without labour is base. Do we know what he said here? No, he's chatting shit. So this is paragraph seven of big old chunky paragraphs. And he's like, the next thing he says is, I dare say you think I'm a long time coming to the pantomime. I am not ready to come to it just yet in due course, for we ought to go and see the Japanese jugglers first. Oh my fucking God. It is ridiculous. So he's gone to see a pantomime. The pantomime is Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And his issue with this play, the reason he's written about labour and joy and sorrow, the pantomime was, as I said, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. The the 40 Thieves were girls. The 40 Thieves had 40 companions who were girls. The 40 Thieves and their 40 companions were in some way mixed up with and about 440 fairies who were girls. There was an Oxford and a Cambridge boat race in which the Oxford and Cambridge men were girls. There was a transformation scene with a forest in which the flowers were girls. And a chandelier in which the lamps were girls. And a great rainbow, which was all of girls. Oh my God. (laughs) Mingled incongruously with these sapphic and, as far as my boyish experience extends, novel elements of the pantomime, there were yet some of its old, fast-expiring elements. There were, in speciality, two thoroughly good pantomime actors, Mr... W.H. Payne and Mr. Frederick Payne. And these two did was well done, admittedly. Honestly, ridiculous. He is angry that this play predominantly features women. Well done on on your performance there, Rich. Thank you. Even though you you are a girl. I thought it was really good. I don't think he would have enjoyed it because I am a girl. I don't think you would have. I would like to see (laughs) this play... Because I enjoyed the mention of it being a bit sapphic. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it sounds like he yeah. was not comfortable with the sapphic nature of this play, but I am down to watch it. Oh, me too. Um, Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, he talks a lot about how everything is all girls. It's ridiculous. The only other, aside from me finding this letter hilarious and en- enraging, is the most interesting thing about his life is his ex-wife. Have you heard of Effie Gray? I don't think so. The name might be familiar because there was a 2014 film starring Dakota Fanning uh, written by Emma Thompson about Effie Gray. And she is interesting because she married Ruskin and then a while after, but not too long after, got a divorce on grounds of, or an annulment on grounds of non-consummation of the marriage because... Let's think of this what we will. Ruskin married her, knew her from a child, mentioned how much he admired seeing her grow from a child. Uh. Married her because she had a pretty face. Okay, I'm reading this from artuk.org. When Euphemia Gray left her husband and her husband John Ruskin for his young pre-Raphaelite protégé, Jean Everett Millay, it caused a public scandal in Victorian England because on means of... Um, them not consummating. He alleged reasons, for example, hatred of children, religious motives, and a desire to preserve my beauty. This is from her. And finally, uh, last year, he told me his true reason, that he had imagined women were quite different to what he saw I was, and that the reason he did not make me his wife in bed was because he was disgusted with my person the first evening. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ruskin himself later made a comment in a similar vein. It may be thought strange that I could abstain from a woman to whom most people were so attractive, but though her face was beautiful, her person was not formed to excite passion. On the contrary, there were certain circumstances in her person which completely checked it. And so people have theorised, these. It's not, it's not confirmed, but people have theorised that these certain circumstances are that as an art critic, he is used to seeing perfectly smoothed women in sculpture and paintings and was surprised that she had pubes. I was going to say And hated that, it. Yeah. So that's another reason why I hate this guy. This guy is, is obviously a twat. Do we think that he could be like asexual or gay or like something along those lines that he doesn't like women at all? That is the question. I need to scroll. I need to read further into it because also my thing was like, if it's like certain aspects of her weren't to his liking, yeah, could he just be, could he just be gay? And just like, it's Victoria times. You can't say that. You can't admit that. Effie sought the annulment for her marriage on grounds of non-consummation due to impotency. Ruskin was willing to take on this charge, embarrassing though it may have been. But as a man, he didn't have to undergo any physical examination. Effie, however, was forced to undergo multiple investigations by doctors who confirmed her virginity was still intact and that was why she was allowed to actually get an annulment. Ugh, my fucking God. I feel like I need to watch this movie as well. Um, Yeah, 2014. I think it is just called Effie Grey. She sounds like an absolute badass because she just put up the heck of a lot. Wow. Should we just wrap up the pod episode there? Or should we <laughs> yeah. not talk about the chapter? <laughs> I'm sorry that that went on so long, but I got really into it and I was like, this dickhead. <laughs> I hope we don't get any more quotes from him because I don't want to hear anything else from him. If we do, at least I won't have to monologue about him again because I can be like that twat, you remember him? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I do. I'll never forget him, actually. Yeah. Okay, shall we talk about this chapter? Yes. Yes. Will and Lyra, they wake up at around, pretty much the same time and they're both thinking the same thing, which I'm assuming is Tally and Sally still around, are they going to fucking kill us? But they find that like Tally's nearby, guarding. So Tally says that the CCD's retreated and Mrs. Coulter has been taken to Asriel, which is very interesting. Rich, the eyebrows. I did, I did some eyebrows, okay? <laughs> Rich did some sexy eyebrows. I'm just saying, where's she going to stay? Is there a spare room? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad she's okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't want her to fuck Asriel again. She deserves better. Does she? I'm always like, she deserves better. And I'm like, mm, she is like a child murderer, but still. He deserves to be put in his place, and if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be her. But True. also, he would enjoy it too much. So, Well, exactly. Yeah, we don't want him to have any enjoyment. Exactly. So they get a little catch-up from Tally and Sally. They Will shares what's left of his food with them. There's very much like a little kind of truce situation with them. They've agreed to help each other, and it seems like things are kind of, you know, they're still keeping stuff from each other, but they're, they're good. They're good. They're sharing food. And, you know, fortunately, because the Galavespians are really small, they don't eat all the food. They don't eat too much. Will and Lyra still get a decent enough breakfast of sad bread. <laughs> yeah. And they agree that they'll um, go with them to find Yorick. But then straight after that, they have to go to Azrael. And Will and Lyra are like, cool, okay, sure. We'll definitely do that. So they've decided they're going to go back through to the window. The alethiometer says it's safe to do so. So they, uh, they head on over. There's a description of the window, which is nice, but then there's also a description of 
them trying to close the window, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I found this really fun and like cute to read. It's very just hark- harking us back to the cat and the hornbeam tree. It's really yeah. lovely. For sure. So we get uh, so the window description. The window looks strange in the dazzling air of the desert, giving onto the deep shaded bush a square of thick green vegetation hanging in the air like a painting. The Galavespians wanted to look at it and were astounded to see how it was just not there from the back and how it only sprang into being when you came round from the side. And I just thought we've not had like a window description. I've seen it from the point of view of someone that's never seen one before for a while. Yeah, I always forget that you can't see it from both sides and... Also, Phil consistently describes them as being like a rectangle. But also, how is Will pinching it together if it's a rectangle? Like, I'm struggling between the imagery of the rectangle looking like a picture frame hanging in midair and the image I have in my head of Will doing like zipping it up like a Ziploc bag in the TV series. If it's a window, is there like a little piece of reality that's like flapped down that's getting (laughs) flapped back up? Like, flaps. Flaps, indeed. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But then, so they all have a go at closing it and none of them can apart from Will. Mm-hmm. I love that, yeah, the way that it's like the edges are so fine and no one can feel them, even the Galavespians with their tiny hands. Tiny, tiny hands, yeah. yeah. And then after this, we get like a horrible description of like the wreckage that's left behind. It's very grim. It makes me think of yellow jackets. Yeah, yellow jackets and Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. when the guy gets stuck in the tree or oh, is there like the plane in the tree so there's some kind of cra- grounded plane and like dead bodies in trees <laughs> yeah uh, very intense very witnessing all of this chaos and destruction that I guess they were pretty oblivious to when they were just trying to get themselves out of there is the first time that Will thinks oh I hope Anna got home okay yeah before we get that I just want to call out uh, Phil's use of the word children during this description because I think we've also been guilty of kind of we try to remind ourselves that Lyra and Will are just kids a lot because of what they've been through and sometimes we, we as podcasters treat them as adults when actually they are children and uh, Phil describes all these horrible grim like bodies hanging from trees and like burn uh, corpses everywhere and stuff and then he says Shocked and silenced, the two children moved through the carnage while the spies on their dragonflies looked around more coolly, accustomed to battle, knowing how it had gone and who had lost most. And I think that use of the word children is very, very deliberate in a paragraph that is about horrendous aftermaths of a battle. Yeah. I feel like Phil's had a really, like, he's very into the imagery that he's created here because later in the chapter he says something like a boy and a girl and a bear. And it's just, again, like, just putting that into your head of, like, how magical is this? Or, like, how devastating is this? Just, like, putting children in it makes a real impact. You're right. But, yes, you are right. It is the first time that Will then thinks about Amma. Yeah. And Lyra, thank goodness Lyra is considerate because she is, like... Uh, Will's like, oh, I hope the little girl's all right. We'd never have got away if she hadn't woken you up. She went to get a holy man to get that powder especially. We know about it. Oh, we do. And Lyra's like, oh, she is all right, because I asked the alethiometer last night. She thinks we're devils, though. She's afraid of us, and she probably wishes she'd never got mixed up in it. But she's safe. Thank goodness Amma is safe. Thank goodness. I like that journey for Amma, that she like thinks that they're the devil and that she shouldn't have got mixed up in it. Because I'm like, yeah, girl, good for you. Like, Stay out of it, you know? Get back to your life. <laughs> Get back to your life. They're clearly like 
didn't appreciate what you did enough to th- want you to be safe at the time and like okay fine we'll give them a little bit of credit for like thinking about you afterwards but then also they're not worth Lyra it. Lyra thinking about her. Lyra didn't necessarily like she knew that Amma played a role in waking Lyra up. But again, girls got each other's backs. Will did not give Amma a second thought until right now when he realized, oh shit, we just let her wander off, assumed she was safe, and now we're seeing all of this devastation and destruction. And Lyra was like, no, no, I checked my girl got home safe. We know how to text each other and make sure we get home safe. Oh yeah, for thanks. Sure. Like I knew as a girl to use the alethiometer to check in that my friend got home safe, even though I've only just met her. Yeah, absolutely. That's how we do. (laughs) True. So they then head towards Yorick, which is a day's hard walking. And Lyra is not having a good time because she is, her like feet are really hurting and she's tired from, and her like muscles aren't used to walking from being asleep for so long, but she's still being so fucking proud and she won't admit it. She won't admit it. Would you like a fun medical fact? Oh yeah. Would you like to guess how long it takes of inactivity for your muscles to begin to atrophy. Ooh. Oh, I don't know. It's going to be like weeks. Two? Three? Pretty close, pretty close. Okay, so uh, inactivity, e.g. bed rest, is associated with atrophy at a loss of muscle strength at a rate of 12% per week. After three to five weeks of bed rest, almost 50% of the muscle strength is lost. Um, that's from one source. Another source says, how long does it take for muscles to atrophy? Experts suggest that muscles start to shrink after four to six weeks of inactivity. So not only is the strength like 50% strength loss, but after like four to six weeks, your actual muscles are shrinking. Um, the timeline varies from person to person. For instance, athletes tend to lose muscle mass more quickly than people that live a sedentary life. So like you or me, anyone that does like sitting down work, all the time anyway, your body's used to maintaining whatever level of muscle you have based on that level of activity. But if you are a hiker and you all of a sudden stop hiking, you will much more be more likely to lose like muscle mass on your legs a lot faster than someone that doesn't do it. I think that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're more active and you stop being active, then you're going to lose it more quickly. But like, I'm not surprised Lyra's struggling because we don't know how long she was asleep, but Will's journey was definitely weeks it wasn't days it was weeks and she has not been moved around much at all mrs Coulter moved her around a bit to like stop her getting bed sores basically but she definitely has atrophied muscles so i'm not surprised she's absolutely knackered and they're not going easy on her they're like hiking up a mountain yeah sally's like girl rest and she's like no i don't want will to know and i'm like just do it just do it just do it it's not just weakness no and Lyra's quite rude to her as well, which is like classic Lyra. Mm. It's like she is actually trying to help you at this point. Tally gets out the the lodestone resonator. And I like the line of curiosity overcoming resentment. Because I feel that's such like a, a child thing. Because like Lyra wants to see how it's working. And she's obviously got the face on, basically. And she sat there like with the grump on. And then she's like, oh, actually, but this thing's quite interesting. This looks like something like an alethiometer, which I know about. I want to know about this. And I like that because I I just remember that so well from being a kid, like still trying to maintain your like resentment and like grumpiness, but also being interested in something too. So you're just a bit like, I want to know what's going on. Do you not love the vibe that Lyra is more rude to Salmachia than she is to Tally? Um, it is a little bit of like, I don't want to call it out straight away because it's just, it's only been a few conversations, but a bit of internalised misogyny there. Like, 
a woman's checking in on you to make sure that you're okay and you snap at her, but you come out of your grunt to go and grump to go and see what this guy's doing that hasn't paid any attention to you whatsoever and like try to get his like approval and it's like, no. You could also ask Sally what the what is. Yeah, we know that Lyra's got a lot of internalised misogyny anyway because of how she was brought up and we've seen it in Northern Lights and other, you know, in I'm sure we saw it at some point in The Little Knife, so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. It may or it may not be that in this moment is all. I guess if she's feeling defensive, it could just be that. But yeah, after having heard about this mysterious lodestone resonator many, many times, we know that it is some kind of communication device. We actually get quite a detailed description of it at this point. Her companion, the Chevalier, was opening was opening the case of the lodestone resonator and curiosity overcoming resentment, Lyra watched to see what he did. The instrument looked like a short length of pencil made of dull grey-black stone resting on a stand of wood. The Chevalier swept a tiny bow like a violinist across the end while he pressed his fingers at various points along the surface. The places weren't marked, so he seemed to be touching it at random, but from the intensity of his expression and the certain fluency of his movements, Lyra knew it was as skilful and demanding a as skillful and demanding a process as her own of reading the alethiometer. After several minutes, the spy put the bow away and took up a pair of earphones, the earpieces no larger than Lyra's little fingernail, and wrapped one end around the wire, t- uh, one end of the wire, tightly around a peg at the end of the stone, leading the rest across to another peg at the other end and wrapping it around that. By manipulating the two pegs and the tension on the wires between them, he could obviously hear a response to his own message. So my question for this is because it then goes on to kind of tell you exactly how it works, which is basically like all the stuff that you've just said. The first bit is him sending the message and then he puts his little earphones on and like here's the response. But then does that mean that you have to be near it all the time? Like you have to be like, because the messages don't save anywhere. So like, but we've seen Tally and Sally take it out at certain points. They're not watching it all the time. So what if Lord Rook sent a message when they weren't there to hear it? I'm just saying, being as we know that he's literally listening to vibrations, he's literally just got his phone on vibrate. (laughs) (laughs) He knows that somebody's trying to talk to him because he can feel his little briefcase going... Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I was thinking the same thing of like, there is no other way to communicate what time to be listening. So I guess Lord Asriel has somebody employed to literally just be, or Lord Roke has someone employed to literally just sit there and wait for a message to come through so they can reply straight away, maybe. Yeah, but what about Tally and Sally? Because they're going to miss it, aren't they? Unless they do have a time where they, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. But yeah, so the vibe of how the stone itself works is quantum entanglement, which sounds very Marvel and very physics-y, that the stone is manipulated in such a way that it's it's like I'm viewing it as like you know when you make a magnet by like you if you stroke a pin enough times in the right direction it like lines up all the particles and makes it magnetic. I'm viewing it as that, and then they like chop it in half, um, and then it's magically, magically, f- physically, <laughs> uh, both stones have the same thing happen. So it's a what it's a walkie-talkie. It's a phone that can only call one person. Yeah, like a pager. Yeah, but it's it's fun. It reminds me very much of. You're going to love this. Have you seen the Lindsay Lohan film, I Know Who Killed Me? I haven't. I've heard a lot about this film, but I've never seen it. (laughs) Well, uh, she is an identical twin that was separated at birth. And one of them is like a uh, high school student. And the other one 
is a stripper and one or the other of them, I think the high school student gets kidnapped and they are quantumly entangled. So when she gets kidnapped and whatever, like she gets like a cut on her hand and then, oh my goodness, the the other person gets it, like whatever happens to one happens to the other and therefore somebody has to go and solve their own their own murder. <laughs> the dancer has to solve the murder of the twin she doesn't know she has. Of, like trying to work out why she's getting mysteriously injured while her twin is like tied up in a basement. It's such a departure for Lindsay Lohan after doing right? <laughs> all those like teen movies, all those excellent teen movies, my ad. No, I've never seen it. I've heard a lot about it though. It I can't is say I'm uh, bad. excited to, <laughs> to watch it. Also, they do it a lot in the Vampire Diaries to like be like, oh no, you can't kill so-and-so because they've linked themselves magically to Elena. So whatever happens to this person happens to Elena. And obviously Elena's the main character, so we can never kill her. <laughs> Just makes me think of all those things. But obviously that, that's with people and not with stones. Tally then talks to Sally and Lyra can't hear, but Pan becomes an owl to hear it. But then we just never find out what they talked about. Eh, Pan's just a nosy little bitch. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Everyone's spying on everybody here. This is how how we roll now. We're suspicious of everyone. They carry on walking and then Will notices that Lyra's in bad shape and puts ointment on her blistered feet. And I was just like, I bet they fucking stink. Yeah, it's very like gammy feet after DOV vibes. Oh god, yeah, yeah. This whole thing is very DV. For those that don't know, DV Duke of Edinburgh was like an award you did as like an extracurricular thing at school, and a big part of it was like going on a walk. And you know what? I never did it. All my friends went and did it, and I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I do enough walking. Same. I was like, I didn't do it either. I was like, no, I'm alright. Yeah, but like, they, all my friends were like, oh, look at the size of this blister that I got, and I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Lord Rook is sending a, a gyrocopter to pick them up after this book into Yorick. And again, Lyra and Will are like, cool, sure, yeah, we'll hop straight on there. We'll be on that gyrocopter. Sure thing. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> we'll definitely do Why are you acting so weird? We'll definitely get on that. We're going to do that. I'm so excited, actually, to, to get on that gyrocopter straight after his book into Yorick. Can't wait. Or gyropter, even though I always want to say gyrocopter. Is There's it not no gyrocopter? C. There's no C. No, we were saying gyropter. No. No. no, we were so so it is Fuck. gyropter. Um, I've been saying gyrocopter this whole time. Fuck, <laughs> it's the Takei Takai of the season. Yeah, it really is. I'm just going to carry on saying it because I oh, can't same. be asked to like train my brain to not say it. It's so. what my brain's gotten imprinted on it because I've read it wrong for so many years. So this is it. Yeah, now. they walk for another hour and then Lyra sees Yorick, uh, and he runs down towards her, and it's very cute. I love this Lyra and Yorick reunited. The Bear King was some way off still, his white coat indistinct against a patch of snow. But when Lyra's voice echoed out, he turned his head, raised it to sniff and bounded down the mountainside towards them. Ignoring Will, he let his he let Lyra clasp his neck and bury her, her face in his fur, growling so deep that Will felt it through his feet. But Lyra felt it as pleasure and forgot the blisters and her weariness in a moment. Oh. Yorick's back. I mean, Yorick's Yay. been back this whole time, but Yorick and Lyra, yeah. dream team. <laughs> Yeah, um, she calls him my dear again, but yeah. I'll let it go. But I completely forgot coming into this chapter that Lyra doesn't know about Lee. And I was like, no, why? Stop it now. Look, I love Lee Scorsby with my entire heart, but can people stop reminding me that he's dead? This is a really interesting moment, though, for me, because I feel like it really highlights how kind of how I've been feeling. Like, we've got Lyra back but it doesn't quite feel like we've got Lyra back properly because we've spent 
two books kind of getting much more time of being like Lyra's point of view and this is still Will's point of view we're not actually getting to hear how Lyra feels we're just hearing how Will feels being like a degree of separation from the grief because he didn't know the person who died so he feels like a bit alienated from it and then he feels guilty because he knows he recognizes the name Grumman and he knows that Scoresby died protecting his dad and like he's like oh this is like a this is a weird feeling for me witnessing my friend find out about someone they love that they've lost like I feel really separate from this and as the reader I feel really separate from it too like I really identify with Will Mm, for sure it's very interesting I wonder like when or if we will go back to Lyra's perspective like I can't remember obviously yeah I I feel like it's going to be a shift that happens gradually we won't realize oh suddenly we're hearing Lyra's thoughts too now but like it's at the moment I'm like I'm kind of glad that I didn't have to experience that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a bit that made me like kind of laugh in in a bit of a like morbid way, where like Lyra's like, "Are you sure he's dead?" And York's like, "Girl, <laughs> I fucking hate him. I, I hope he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> if he wasn't, then he is now. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I." definitely had that exact same thing as well just like Yorick's face I'm like if the bear could raise his eyebrows and choose not to say well he's definitely dead because I ate him that's exactly what's happening like yeah oh god uh yeah I'm still also I'm still like it reminded me that you know uh, Lee died to save Grumman and then fucking Grumman just died anyway and it reminded me of that and I got angry about it all over again and I was like fucking hell Lee died for nothing Literally, so frustrating. Also, yeah, Yorick easily could have said, he's like, oh, I found his body. He died bravely. I shall avenge him. No, it's, I found his body. I ate it. <laughs> I shall avenge him. Like, <laughs> he did die bravely. Lyra rides Yorick back to the cave. And I love it. She's like, yes. And Will's like, she looks like more at home here and more proud of herself than ever because she's riding her polar bear. And it's like, yes. <laughs> and Yorick does not offer Will a lift at no. all. He's like, no, no, just Lyra, actually. <laughs> just my girl, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they go back to, they go to Yorick's cave and they're not sure where Tally and Sally are. They're keeping themselves well hidden. And they've also not mentioned them to Yorick, which I feel is an odd choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and Yorick makes a fire, uh, you know, with his man hands. <laughs> We've established he has claws now. They're mentioned enough times that I'm yeah. willing to accept that he doesn't have people hands. Yeah. I think somebody went to Phil and, were like, and was like, you know, in Northern Lights, it kind of sounded like Yorick had human hands. And then every time since then, Phil's been like, his massive bear hands with their claws. <laughs> uh, paws, I believe, actually. <laughs> bear hands. Bear hands. <laughs> his massive bear hands. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Yorick makes a fire and then he makes dinner. He hands them a haunch of something that he's like, we'll roast this. I've got you covered. Bear dad's got dinner sorted. It's Hell great. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, so Lyra's checking in on him. She's like, oh, is it easy hunting in the mountains? And he's like, no, my people can't live here. I was wrong. But luckily so, since I found you. So like, sad times. No yeti bear myths for us. They're going to have to leave and we don't know where to. Yeah, sucks. And they travel all that bloody way and all, don't they? Yeah, God, I'd be so pissed off. I would. I would as well. Damn you, Asriel global warming explosions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So then... There's a bit of a, I, I noted this down as a knife and spies argument. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Basically what it is. Because Will is kind of goes into the fact that the knife's broken, but they still can't see where Tally and Sally are. And he's like, well, fuck it. I've got to say it at some point. Here it is kind of thing. And then there's like a whole thing 
where they're like pissed off and will gets like really sassy about it for like no real reason and i wonder if he's just like showing off a little bit to lyra and trying to endear himself to yorick like when you meet your girlfriend's dad and you're like you try and be like oh such pay, pay such respect i don't know <laughs> but his whole thing of just like He's really rude to Tali and Sally. He knows like that they are easily offended. Like he's seen it. <laughs> yeah, and it it works on Lyra because it's it's like Lyra loved hearing that. Yeah, yeah. She looked at Will with pleasure and saw him fierce and contemptuous. These two have like a. Sometimes I'm like, oh, like the the clear like love that they share for each other is really really lovely. And then I'm like, sometimes I'm like, there's aspects of this like whatever you want to call it friendship relationship that's unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Also, again, reminding ourselves they're children. It is very like one little kid choosing to show off to another little kid. Like they're not the most subtle about it. And it's if you read it like that, it's, it's kind of cute. But yeah, him being like, um, if you're listening, come out and do it honestly. Don't spy on us. You haven't asked Yorick Bernison for permission to enter his cave. Like you haven't asked my dad if you're allowed in yet. <laughs> and he's a king. You're just a spy. You should show more respect. And he's like, see, remember that respect conversation we had? I'm bringing it up again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an um, an interesting bit where Lyra uh, thinks about Will's demon. She says his demon, Lyra thought, would have uh, would have the form of a tigress, and she shrank back from the anger she imagined the great animal to share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I think it's sweet, Lyra, trying to imagine what Will's demon would be in different moments. Yeah, Tally's like pissed off that they lied about the knife and I get it but also basically Will just tells him to get over it essentially the whole paragraph is just him being like you gotta fucking get over it mate yeah it's a bit it's a bit awkward because he's like we've been truthful with you it's dishonourable to deceive us and Will's like well it was necessary like would you have come here and helped us if not no okay so what were we supposed to do not lie to you and it's like I mean okay but a bit harsh (laughs) like you might have asked them for help. They might have not been dicks about it. I think them taking you to Asriel, kind of the knife as part of that package deal, they probably would have wanted to see it mended. It's quite an assumption to be like, oh, they definitely just knock us out and kidnap us there instead. <laughs> yeah. He kind of like earns them a little bit where he's like, well, because Yorick's like, who's this? And he's like, spies sent by Lord Asriel. They helped us escape yesterday, but if they're on our side, they shouldn't hide an eavesdrop on us. And if they do, they're the last people who should talk about dishonour. And it is a bit of a boom roast. Mm -hmm. He's not wrong. (laughs) Boom roasted. (laughs) I'm imagining Lyra kind of sitting there like, oh, 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 because like the drama, the The tension. Am I the drama? They Um, are the drama. They are the drama. (laughs) Yeah. No, the the dramatics are great and the tension is great. And Tally and Sally are fucking fuming. And Yorick just kind of being there like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I just arrived. Um, (laughs) And then they call him Your Majesty and he growls because he's like, "Uh, I didn't consent to be part of whatever this situation is. (laughs) Um, Your beef is your beef. Can we not like weirdly give me airs and graces? (laughs) Because I can imagine Yorick being a bit weird about being your majesty. And like, especially like the frilly stuff. Because like, obviously, Sally goes on to be like really, really deferent to him. And like, she kind of comes in and plays the diplomat and very much smooths it over. But I can imagine Yorick being a bit even feeling uncomfortable about that. Because like, his whole thing is he like overthrew Joffa Ratnison, who was all about the airs and graces and the your majesties. And I feel like Yorick's just like, I'm just a bear. (laughs) 
Like, yeah, for sure. Mm. I think that he would find it offensive because it's coming from somebody that he has, you know, got a fucking clue who they are as well. He wouldn't want it from his own bears, but I think he would, wouldn't find it as strange and if it was from like, because also just like that just comes across and they probably, they, they, it sounds like they are being sincere, but it comes across as insincere, doesn't it? When somebody says to you, well, you're not respecting King York Bernison. And then you're like, oh, sorry, your majesty. Like it doesn't really like sound the most sincere thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Salmachius moves over. She's like, oh, the habit of concealment is hard to break. And we're so used to being spies that like we've been among the enemy for so long. Like, sorry, we've been hiding. We should have been up front because I feel like Yorick's a pretty upfront guy. Like, and so she does a good job of kind of explaining why they were so hidey and sneaky, which is like fine. And Yorick's like, okay. Um, <laughs> he doesn't judge them for being super tiny because he's like, there's got to be something. There's got to be something. Like, I get that you've got some kind of superpower or magic spurs or whatever. Like, I'm not going to question why you're dangerous. I can tell you are. And then he offers them some food and they have a, a little eat. It's cute. Yeah. And then Will asks Yorick if he can fix the knife and he asks to see it. And he says that he can. And then Lara's like, oh, wait a minute. But will you? <laughs> She's like, I get what you mean here, but will you actually though? I love that. <laughs> It's like, yes, I can, but will you? <laughs> he pushes the pieces around like a jigsaw puzzle with his claws. Phil is big his on bare hands, the claws again, actually. his bare hands again. Yeah. <laughs> his bare hands, but not his like bare hands. No, no, <laughs> no he's not wearing gloves either. They are both his bare hands and See? his bare hands. His bare, bare hands. His bare, bare. <laughs> yeah. I love Yorick in this when he's like, I don't like it. I don't know what it does. And it scares me. He's just very up upfront about it. He's like, yep, I don't like it. I'm not sure what it does. And like, Will's very like, but, but, but. And Yorick is like, no. And then he talks about intentions. Cruel intentions, Cruel we intentions. will find out. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's interesting because like, the way that Phil's written this is that we'd kind of like started to feel safe with the knife and we'd kind of been starting to take it for granted because like they can, it's been so helpful. Um, It's really easy to forget like, why and how it was made and how much we know very little about it and it's interesting that this reminds us and also gives us a new aspect that kind of the knife has its own kind of consciousness that might not be a consciousness but it has its own intentions whether they be cruel or not and it's interesting to think about that we just don't we just don't know a lot about this knife yeah i quite enjoy the quote uh, that the intentions of a tool are what it does a hammer intends to strike a vice intends to hold fast a lever intends to lift that is what they're made for but sometimes a tool may have other uses that you don't know sometimes in doing what you intend you can also do what the knife intends without knowing can you see the sharpest edge of that knife? And you can't. And I forgot the detail about the knife that like the fine edge is so fine. You like, you could touch it before you could see it. It would cut with an invisible edge, basically. It's like, oh, it's so satisfying that that's how it is. Um, and that also adds like a, well, if you can't see the bit that's doing the cutting, how do you know what it's doing? It's like a really cool concept. For sure. And um, we see here as well, like the amount of pressure that Will puts on himself when Yorick's like, um, can you see the sharpest edge? And Will says, no, then how can you know everything it does? And he says, I can't, but I must still use it and do what I can to help good things come about. If I did nothing, I'd be worse than useless. I'd be guilty. You are a child. Like, I don't think you'd be guilty. It is too much to have on your shoulders as is. 
Like, we know this. But also, yeah. Lyra kind of piles on with the same thing. She brings up Bullvanger. It gets all very, like, good and evil. Yorick, you've got to fix this knife. We need it. Otherwise, the bad guys will have it. Which is, like, again, some, some kind of Lyra persuasion logic there of, like, well, you not having the weapon isn't exactly the same as giving the other person the weapon. But also, like, we get it. They need it. And she says that she can ask the alethiometer. It's the cleverest thing to do. Absolutely. And Will, oh, Will and his mum, says, Will didn't want to mention his own most pressing reason. If the knife were not repaired, he'd never get home, never see his mother again. She would never know what had happened. She'd think he'd abandoned her as his father had done. The knife had been directly responsible for both their desertions. He must use it to return to her or never forgive himself. And it this paragraph really upset me because I was like, it's so true. Like, there's such a, like, high chance that Will will never get to see his mum again. And it's the exact same thing that happened to his dad. And I'm like, we can't do that to Yvonne. Not again. It can't no, happen. No. I just can't have it. And I won't. <laughs> it's not allowed to happen. No. And that no. is exactly what Will is saying, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I just, ugh, Will's so vulnerable. And you forget that he's just a kid that misses his mum and, like... So, Lyra, they agree, knowing what the hell the knife is going to do, or, like, what its intentions are, the least you can do is ask the alethiometer. Lyra asks it. I love the, uh, before before she does, I love the, like, Yorick thinking about it vibes, because everyone's just, like, awkwardly sat around while, like, Yorick's, like, thinking about it for ages. <laughs> yeah. He just goes and has, like, a little look at the stars and stuff, and, like... Yeah. <laughs> just and they're all just, like... Doing some pondering. I just imagine him, like, looking at their, like watch as if they had them like like awkwardly looking at each other like what's going should we should we should we tap him like what do we do like, has he forgot did like he forget talking, what we asked and i stop halfway through a sentence and then whatever it was is gone and people are like are you were you ever going to finish that sentence were you going somewhere with that and i'm like if i was who knows it's gone it's, <laughs> it's gone. gone now uh it, it's not gone now yorick is gonna reply lyra reads the alethiometer and we get some pretty hazy readings. We get two alethiometer readings from Lyra. The one that she is willing to say in front of Yorick and Tally and Sally and the one that she is willing to tell Will. The first reading, the one that everyone's allowed to know, is... It's said about balance at first. It said the knife could be harmful or it could do good, but it was so slight and such a delicate kind of balance. Subtle, if you will. Uh, <laughs> Uh, such a delicate kind of a balance that the faintest thought or wish could tip it one way or the other and it meant you will it meant that what you wished or thought only it didn't say what would be a good thought or a bad one then it said yes she said her eyes flashing at the spies it said yes do it repair the knife yorick looked at her steadily and then nodded once is that lyra doing a little fib at the end to conceal the rest of the truth is that yorick knowing that that's what she's done I put, yeah, I put that as a note. Is that a lie? I think that's a lie. Uh, I think that the dot, dot, dot gives it away and the glance at them. I don't know if that's Yorick knowing. You can't deceive a bear. Mm, true, it must be Yorick knowing then. Yorick also understands when Lyra's like, do you need more fuel? And like, well, maybe not actually because it's Will that understands because they need to move away and talk. But Yorick then tells them where to go to get fuel. So I'm like, is Yorick clued in? Is he not? I hope he is. I don't want Lyra to lie to Bear Dad. True, but it's also interesting because, like, you're right, you can't deceive a bear, but Yorick doesn't want to fix the knife in the first place, so 
if he if the alethometer didn't say to fix it, why would he then want to fix it? Is it just because he trusts Lyra? Yeah, maybe it's like he trusts that she has had all the information the alethometer can give and wants to still say yes. He's like, I trust that this girl with all the information will tell me to do the right thing. I trust this girl. Or is it, well, it said yes, so I'll do it. Because I don't think Yorick would just blindly follow the alethometer without making a judgment call of his own as well. Yeah. But I think you're right in the sense that he trusts Lyra and he'll do whatever for her. Yeah. So they ask Yorick if he needs any more fuel or firewood in order to, A, help him make a bigger, hotter fire, because I suspect he'll need one for whatever he needs to do to fix the knife, and so that they can go for a little walk and a little chat and find out the other thing that the alethiometer said, which is weird. Uh, it said some things I didn't understand and I still don't understand now. It said the knife would be the death of dust, but then it said it was the only way to keep dust alive. I didn't understand it well, but it said again that it was dangerous. It kept saying that. that it, it said if we, you know, what I thought, if we go to the world of the dead. Yeah, it said if we do that, we might never come back, Will. We might not survive. And then they say nothing and walk along and it's like, ooh, are they gonna die? I like the like how this is like played out because they talk a little bit about like oh fuck well we might not survive and like you know the alethiometer said that but then it's like well what if we don't go and it's like it's just emptiness it's just blankness there's like nothing also considering how we took like a few issues with the dialogue last week or last episode this little bit of speaking between Will and Lyra in this moment, I feel like is some of the best that we've heard, especially with the way that they're both so vulnerable with each other and literally Lyra being like, I'm frightened. Like, I don't know if I'd say frightened, I'd probably say scared. But, you know, like it's not, it's, but it's some really lovely, like the shorter and choppier dialogue in this is really working. The way that it's cutting off, the way they're like interrupting each other and being like, yeah, that. And, like, it just feels a lot more natural and flowy. And it's also just Will and Lyra back together again. They know each other. Also, um, we kind of get, like, a little insight into Will's intentions. Because, like, if you remember last time, I was like, oh, I really liked how uh, Will was just so uh, on board with wanting to go to the Land of the Dead with Lyra immediately without, like, asking any questions. They could see how important it was to her. But we now learn that he wants to see his dad there. So I wonder whether that played into him being on board with it straight away or he's like had time to think on it and he's like, oh, actually, well, maybe my dad will be there. Oh, yeah, he just wants to have a chat with Joppery, who deserves to be haunted. And now that he's in the world of the dead, Lee can probably do a really good job of haunting him. True. <laughs> they can have a good chat. Yes. So, yeah, they're very open with each other. Lyra admits that she's scared and Will admits that he's scared that he's never going to see his mum again. Um, they're very, like, vulnerable with each other. Um, I think this is, like, the first time that they've, like, we've seen it so plainly on paper, the fact that, you know, how much they trust each other with their feelings. Because, like, we've seen it in their actions, but I think this is the first time they've actually opened up to each other with words. Yeah, the way that we get from Will, they're like... What, after she, Lyra's gone off and she said all the things she's scared of and then it's like what I'm afraid of said Will after a minute not looking at her at all is getting stuck somewhere and never seeing my mum again and it's like 
the fact that it takes him a minute to say it, the fact that he can't meet her eyes when he says it, like it shows the level of vulnerability from him that like we've just, we've literally just not had it before. We've had it internalised. Like he's said these things on the page. Like we know he's thinking them, but I don't think he's like said it, said it. And it means so much. And then we have this heartbreaking revelation from Lyra where she's like, before that, he has a memory of his mum sitting there by his side all night when he was sick as a child. And it breaks my heart. He's like, I can't do that to her. She was there for me. I need to be there for her. And it's like, Ugh. and then Lyra, bless her little heart. She's like, realises that she can't really relate to him because obviously she hasn't had that experience with her mother. And she's like, you know, with my mother, I never realised. I just grew up on my own, really. I don't remember anyone ever holding me or cuddling me. It was just me and Pan as far back as I can go. I can't remember Mrs Lonsdale being that nice to me. She was a housekeeper at Jordan. All she did was make sure I was clean. That's all she thought about Owen Manners. But in the cave, Will, I really felt, oh, it's strange. I know she's done terrible things. I really felt she was loving me and looking after me. She must have thought I was going to die being asleep all that time. I suppose I must have caught some disease, but she never stopped looking after me. I remember waking up once or twice and she was holding me in her arms. I do remember that, I'm sure. That's what I'd do in her place if I had a child. With this, right? Firstly, my stomach dropped because I forgot that Lyra doesn't know why Same. she was asleep. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Number two. After I thought about it and being like, wow, that's actually a really good reveal because it is a good reveal, regardless of what I'm about to say next. I don't buy that Lyra wouldn't immediately, when she woke up, be like, why the fuck was I asleep for so long? Why has that happened? And like the fact that she's just like, oh, I probably caught some disease or something. That's not Lyra. Lyra wants to know. Maybe, maybe it's a case of her like subconsciously not wanting to know because maybe subconsciously she knows that it was Coulter but it's very not Lyra but a little part of me was like she can remember waking up and being held by Mrs Coulter but she can't remember being force fed that liquid which is also like would you block one thing out and not the other probably yes because one is incredibly traumatic um but yeah it just it breaks my heart that she doesn't know like I think if she'd have woken up and and had the regular Mrs. Coulter treatment where Mrs. Coulter was being really nice to her, she would have got suspicious immediately. But being torn away from Coulter and seeing that, like, crumbling Coulter begging to come after her and, like, that kind of thing makes me think, like, maybe she, maybe she just really wants a mum. I think she does. And I think maybe that's, like, it's hor horribly sad. I think that's what's clouding her judgment on it. And it's maybe a case of her not really wanting to know because she like skims over that oh maybe I got a disease or something really quickly but then I don't agree with Will not telling her that's why I was going to ask you how do we feel about the ethics of telling her or not telling her because she has a right to know I don't think it's the right thing to keep it from her and I understand that the situation is difficult but she deserves to know what happened to her and then to make her own decision about what happened to her yeah definitely if Mrs Coulter had died I might understand it because it would be like, okay, let her have this one memory of her mother that's nice. But Coulter is still out there and going to do whatever Coulter's going to do. We don't want Lyra to suddenly have this like massive amount of trust instilled in somebody that's been incredibly abusive to her for the last however many months by keeping her asleep, like against her will. Like that's, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe if that Sting had killed Coulter and Lyra was genuinely just like wanting one nice memory of her mother. I might have not had an issue with it in the same way. But even so, like, I just feel like knowing the truth is better. 
for sure. It's only going to harm Will and Lyra's relationship for him to be actively keeping something from her. I just, yeah, I think that she should be told for sure. Emma would have told her. <laughs> mm, yeah, she would. Yeah. She would. But then the the chapter ends quite abruptly after that. They just kind of go to that bush that they need to go to to get the whatever they're getting for the fire and that's it. They go back towards the cave. Mm-hmm. They gather up as much as they can and they stomp on back to the cave. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know what the next chapter's called? Yes. The Forge. Oh. Well, I wonder what's going to happen there. (laughs) I suspect it might be fiery. (laughs) We've had like two chapters now following the same vein of story. And it sounds like the next one will be the same as well. So it's interesting. I wonder when we'll be back with like Mary and if we'll go back to like Asriel at some point and Coulter. Now they're together. Yeah. Do you have an award to give out? My award this week is the award for diplomacy and it's going to the Lady Salmachia. She has just generally been a lot more on it and a lot less on the defensive than Tally has been. Sally noticed when Lyra was tired, she got snapped at by Lyra, but she didn't snap back. I feel like Tally's been very like aggressive with Will and like a lot of back and forth. Sally seems very diplomatic. And we love her for it. Like, yeah, she gets the Diplomacy Award. Like, she sweet-talked Yorick and she did all the airs and graces and she's been keeping an eye out for Lyra. She's she doing good. Yeah, that's fair. That's good. What about you? Who's your award for? Mine is... So I, I'm giving it to Yorick for being the best bear dad. Of course. But then I'm also honorarily giving it to Lee because he got a mention and he's the best balloon dad. So I'm giving it to the dads. The dads! Balloon and bear dads. Uh, this one's for the dads. The dads, for the dads. <laughs> oh, bear yeah. dad. And his bear hands. <laughs> and his big bear hands. Speaking of awards and things we love as much as dads, bear dads and balloon dads specifically, we love reviews. If you've been listening for a while, you know the spiel, but I'm going to do it again anyway. We really want to get 50 reviews because that's like a really good number. It helps us in all the polls and stuff. So we're rewarding you for leaving us a review by opening up a prize draw. If you screenshot your review and email it to us at her.materialspod at gmail.com, that email becomes your entry into a prize draw. When we hit the all-important 50, we will pull 10 names out of a hat. 10 of you will get bookmarks. One person will get a super cool sticker up-to-date merch pack. So it's just a really cool thing and you should do it. And especially because you love us. Yay, do it, do it, do it. Give us five stars. Say nice things. Share us with a friend. Tweet us. <laughs> Share us with a friend. Share us with a friend. <laughs> Make your friends our friends. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Tweet us. Instagram messages, tag us and shit. We love it. We love to see it. It's great. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. 
I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Bear Dad and Balloon Dad, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Still Into You Pod. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here raging about annoying Victorian men that write wanky things in books, I am making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RageMakes, on Twitter and TikTok at Rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, RageMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. We'll see you in two weeks' time, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Oh my god, Balloon Dad, forever you fight and you fly, is that the lyric? (laughs) I fucking hope so.